Hello and welcome to a very special Empire Spoiler Special podcast dedicated to not one, not two, but three movies. <laughs> the Fear Street Trilogy. Earlier this summer, director Lee Janiak unleashed three interconnected horror movies harking back to several memorable decades of scary films, packed with gory kills, lovable characters, adapted from the books of R.L. Stein, and released a week apart on Netflix. I'm your host, Ben Travis, and joining me to discuss the entire trilogy, innards and outs, are two esteemed colleagues ready to scare up a storm. So, first up, we have our resident scaredy cat, who always attempts to veer away from the shady side of the street in case of rampant axe murderers. Mr. Amon Woman, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. I feel like that's solid practice that everyone should adopt. Feel free to adopt the woman way, the woman's strategy when it comes to <laughs> avoiding axe murderers. Might come in useful, I'm just saying. <laughs> it's a, uh, a solid uh, approach, you know. But we're also joined by someone who knows her sunny veil from her sunny dale and has thwarted all kinds of curses, devils and resurrected serial killers in her time. Hello, Beth Webb. Hello. Great to be here. Very skilled in the, in the serial killer takedown. Very, uh, <laughs> very skilled. Definitely not terrible at killing serial killers. Teach me your ways. Yeah, I think you and Amon would make an incredible duo taking down demons on the street. Amon will be the, the radar looking for anything spooky, any merest bump in the night. Beth goes in, sorts it all out. Amazing. Definitely. Job done. Would watch. I'd watch that for sure. <laughs> I mean, it's worth noting as well, I get as scared at things as, as Amon, so we are Scaredy Cats United, so it is coming from a place of sheer, no one's having a nice time. Serial killers not having a nice time, the two of us. <laughs> Not having a nice time. <laughs> Scaredy Cats United is our band name. We've got our first album dropping soon. Be on the lookout for it. Could be full of hits. <laughs> but first off, so we're going to be digging into all three parts of the Fear Street trilogy. That's 1994, 1978 and 1666. But first, let's hear from the filmmaker herself. I had a great chat with Lee Janiak the other day, talking about how they broke all three stories how the films play differently on a second viewing, all the amazing needle drops, and all the goriest moments too. So here we go then, here's Lee Janiak on the Fear Street Trilogy. Enjoy. I'm thrilled to be joined on the Empire Spoiler Special for Fear Street by the director and co-writer of all three films, Lee Janiak. How are you doing? Hello, so nice to talk to you today. Yeah, it's lovely to have you on the pod. I loved these films, had such a great time with them, like a real unexpected summer treat. I love horror movies. I love gory horror movies. And we got three, one every week that told their own stories and also told this big overarching story. So there's tons of stuff I want to dig into on that. But the place I want to start is that you got three great pixies needle drops <laughs> into these films which made me very happy in part one you have hay and then at the end of part three you have gigantic and mysteries and those songs sort of become a bit of a theme tune really for, for dina and sam's relationship can you talk about picking those songs and uh, are you a pixie's head was that important for you to get in there Totally. I'm so glad that you that that's where we're starting. I'm, I'm a huge, huge Pixies fan. It's funny. I kind of um, my first um, entree into I think the Pixies world was I went on a road trip with a friend of mine in 1997, I think. Um, and we took a bus from Cleveland to Nashville. And I just listened to Come on Pilgrim the entire time. <laughs> so I think for 
not kidding, probably 10 or 11 hours straight. I just listened to that album over and over and over again. Um, so I was a hu- I'm a huge Pixies fan and it was, it was an amazing kind of thing to be able to include the songs in the movies. Um, and obviously, Hey was important because I just think it's, it's a great love song. And then also on top of that, there's this kind of nice, very poignant hidden message of must be a devil between us. And I thought that was a nice little kind of thing to dangle in. And then Gigantic just felt like a great way to end it. And then obviously also Mr. Greaves is kind of like hitting at the, the bigger world. Of, there's still evil out there. There's still these things existing in the world of Fear Street. So And Gigantic as well, that song being about lovers sneaking into the woods and obviously that's what sam and dina are doing at the end yeah i love it when you feel like when you find like a song and you're like there is no other option for this moment it has to be this it feels like the universe is aligned and that's how i felt with all three of those songs and so you mentioned 1997 was that picks easier for you dates are very important in these movies and part one is 94 part two is 78 part three 1666 can you talk about picking those dates and how you kind of pinned down when all of these films took place. And it struck me that maybe 78 is 78 because of Nick Good's age. You have to work all these things into it. Can you talk about that process? Yeah, totally. That was, so it was interesting. My producer, Peter Chernin, um, he was the one that had this idea of doing three movies kind of all released in one year. And so we knew that we were going to set them in different time periods. But as we started kind of figuring out the different, uh, like the actual like specifics of the movies, we had to start thinking about really practical things. Like you're saying of, of Nick, we needed Nick to have be an adult age for this movie. And then also still a teenager here. Um, one thing that was really important, because I mean, as is clear with the movies, they're, they're, their love letters to to classic kind of slasher movies. And I felt that with 1994, we could live in kind of the, what I consider the new era of, of slasher. So that was really kind of ushered in a little bit later, like with 96 with Scream, I think really kind of blew it up. But I wanted to be firmly in, in that and not kind of like walking that line with 80s horror movies, which I think are very different tonally. So 94 made sense for that. And then we worked back and 78 was a perfect place to be kind of in that late 70s. Of course, Nick's age was important. Young C. Berman's age was important. But also I wanted to think about kind of camp horror movies, which obviously Friday the 13th was 80. But again, it was like weird. I was kind of walking around the 80s part of it all. I wanted it to still feel like a 70s movie. So that's where kind of like the 78 came in. And then 1666, we we knew that we were going to go back to kind of like colonial times earlier than that. Um, And I mean, how can you not like, how can you shy away from an opportunity to use 666 in your movies? <laughs> so it's kind of like, this one is a total no-brainer. And can you talk about, it blows my mind even how you begin to like start structuring these three films individually, breaking the story, as well as having the overarching story and knowing when you want to reveal certain bits of information. So, I mean, 1994 is a sort of straight up slasher film, but with the sort of undead boogeyman twist. Then it's 78, you go kind of more into the curse and the possession stuff and and finding Sarah's hand as the big sort of uh, cliffhanger moment. And then in 1666, going into the, the whole history of the goods and revealing that it's not Sarah Fear. So can you talk about kind of structuring these individual films, but also the overarching mythos and how you slotted that into each film and when you revealed certain bits. 
Yeah, I mean, I think first of all, you should you should write a little thesis on that because that was really well articulated. <laughs> and I wish that you could have been there in development with me as I continue to explain to executives over and over again. <laughs> Um, no, it was, so we kind of started zoomed out. We, we looked at the, the trilogy as one big movie. And, and so for me, it's always kind of starting with the beginning and the end. And, and we took those two kind of like big things of like, okay, we're going to start in 94. There's this idea that there's been an, an urban legend, the, like the idea of like a curse and a witch that has kind of affected this town for centuries. Um, and then we went to the very end, which is like, what if, the witch was not who you thought it was. What if the witch was a scapegoated, you know, young girl who just didn't fit into the norms of kind of the world. And there was actually a bigger evil in the form of this man behind her. And then everything kind of fell into place from there. So it really was like figuring out the big pieces across all three. And then, like you said, kind of wanting to have each experience of each movie also be satisfying and kind of, you know, like you said, movie one is very much kind of in the, in the vein of a, of a pretty straightforward slasher with the twist of, okay, they're undead killers. And we kind of know who the identity is of each of those people. So that kind of came secondary of like, how do we make each movie satisfying while still hitting these big points? And, you know, we wanted it to feel like an onion. We wanted to feel like you were peeling back the layers, like as you kept going. And, you know, part of it was for me thinking about being an audience member. And if you're going to release three movies so closely together, which we never, we didn't really know what that time period was going to be, but we knew that it was going to be close. That was kind of baked into the DNA of the narrative. Um, So I wanted it to feel satisfying and not just like you got to the end of a movie and like, here's a gimmick. We're going to have another one in two weeks. So I felt that that was kind of, um, the best way to shape it. And yeah, but it was a lot. It was very daunting. And it was a lot to keep kind of in my head as we were going. And it was always kind of like explaining like, okay, this is what the characters think. This is what the audience think in this moment, but this is the truth of what's happening. So it was like always kind of juggling those those pieces. Mm. You mentioned Scream before, and it, you can't think of 90 slashes without thinking of Scream. And it feels like there's a very intentional Scream homage at the start of 94, when you have the sequence with Heather Meyerhawk's character. Yeah. And obviously she's dispatched right away. She's one of the most well-known people in these films. I've, I've loved all of her other work. Can you talk a bit about starting with that Heather sequence? Because it's sort of standalone, but it actually tees up everything else that comes afterwards as well. Yeah, I think we unabashedly are stealing from Scream, which I think is, is is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it felt like a very good way to kind of orient the audience into tonally what we were doing with the movies. And then also at the end of that sequence, by kind of unmasking Skull Mask as Ryan Torres in that moment saying, OK, but the movie that you thought this was going to be, there's a twist on it. And and what what will that be? And so that was kind of the goal of that was to to definitely, you know, send that love letter, but then then twist it a little bit um, and really make it feel like, yeah, this standalone thing using Maya was a very calculated kind of, you know, decision. And and that for me was kind of about the Drew Barrymore character um, in Scream. And then also it was it was a nod at, at, at Stranger Things, which my husband created. And it was kind of like, fuck you, we're not just Stranger Things. <laughs> so, in a fond way, of course. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Skull Mask there. Let's talk about some of the killers because in 94, we, we kind of meet various of them. We've got Skull Mask, we've got Nightwing, we've got Ruby Lane. 
obviously with Nightwing, we get the full story behind that. We get a bit more of the story behind Ruby Lane. Did you ever plan more story for sort of some of the other killers? We get little snippets here and there of, of who they were and why they came, where they came from, why they were chosen, maybe. Did you have more of that? Did you ever shoot more of that stuff? Did you think of that for other Fear Street avenues in the future? Yeah, we didn't we didn't shoot anything that we didn't use, but certainly kind of in the in the time when we were writing the scripts, there were there were kind of a there's a sliding scale of like how many killers were in each movie. And and it was interesting because originally in movie one in the grocery store sequence, there were a lot more of the killers. And and then it kind of it, it was again pulling back and saying, We're still in the first act of the trilogy. We want to hold some things like till we get a little bit later and let's live with the ones that are like kind of really important to the narrative that we've already started to lay out. But as we see in like Josh's basement, we're, we're teasing, we're teasing all of these other kind of worlds. And, um, and that really just like took kind of restraint because as we were fleshing out who those characters were, the milkman, Billy Barker, um, the Humpty Dumpty killer, which we don't talk that much about. I would just get really excited and be like, but I want to know more about that. I want to shoot more of this stuff. And and unfortunately, you know, we shot for 106 days, um, which is a lot of time to shoot, but also not that much time for three movies. So, we, you know, we didn't really have the, the room or the space to shoot everything that I would have liked. But But it was definitely kind of this calculated decision and me being sneaky, hoping that we can have that opportunity to kind of expand the universe and maybe explore some of these other killers a little bit more. And I want to talk about Dina and Sam, because that's sort of obviously the central relationship, especially of 1994. But because that thread continues through the other films as well, it's the central thread of the whole story, really. Um, Can you talk about how you establish that relationship and that conflict with Dina and Sam, how that ties into the whole shady side versus Sunnyvale and kind of bedding audiences in with those two and their journey through this film, because they go through a lot <laughs> by the end of the whole thing. <laughs> they definitely do. I mean, I think it all started with like how how do you stay engaged with with characters and with a story across centuries? And to me, it was about kind of looking to what I thought would be the most emotionally um, poignant and effective. And, and that for me was a love story. And, and I thought that being able to kind of like show how Dina and Sam were struggling in the present, um, being, you know, two queer girls in, in 1994, where the world was very different than, than it is now, um, which is still a challenging kind of world, but, but very, very different. Um, and then kind of looking and seeing how we could explore the generational trauma that had affected all shady siders, but, you know, specifically showing Sarah and Hannah as kind of the, the backstory of, of, um, of Dina and Sam. And so, I don't know, for me, that was just like a very important thing and, and being able to kind of, it was, it was challenging, I think, because when you meet Dina and Sam, they're on their way out. Like they're, they've broken up their Sam is, is avoiding who she really is. Dina's angry about it. You don't get to see them being happy together. And so it was really kind of a testament to Kiana and Olivia and their, their connection to be able to still root for them and understand this kind of like challenging, flawed, very teenage, very hopefully um, recognizable relationship while they're still trying to figure things out amidst this insane thing that's happening <laughs> around them. Um, and then ultimately, I think hopefully it feels really satisfying when you get to 1666 and you see Sarah and Hannah and you kind of see what is the beginning of also Dina and Sam. 
So I don't know. It was a really unique opportunity, I think, to be able to do that and and something that you don't usually get to do in horror movies because you're so much carrying the the weight of needing a specific body count and hitting all of like the, you know, the important, the really important, like, you know, for lack of a, a better word, guts of a horror movie of the kills and the blood and everything. Um, but here we had the space to kind of give the characters a, a place to expand. So, yeah. In terms of stuff I've not seen in a horror film before, I don't think I've seen in a horror film before. Um, <laughs> I loved in the shop set piece in the first film, uh, Dina having to kill Sam before anybody else calls her, trying to drown her, trying to like <laughs> knock her out with pills. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about that that moment and all these fun twists on the slasher formula? Yeah, I'm I'm so happy that you talked about that because it's really funny. Like every time I've I you know I've seen these these dailies and these scenes and these movies thousands of times at this point, and every time I watch the scene with um with Dina and Sam, where Dina's kind of like spilling her heart out to Sam in the grocery store, and she gives this whole big monologue, and then she says, "But right now you need to die." <laughs> And every time I laugh because it's so crazy and bonkers. Um, I don't know. I think that me and the other writers, we just liked this idea of bringing these kids to the brink of um, of complete like hope, not hopelessness, but like what is our way out? Like we've been driven to this place where we actually think the best way out of this situation is to try to kill you, which seems so crazy, but also so fun. Um, so that was kind of like how we, we got to that place of, of being like, we're going to, we're going to trust each other. We're going to try and hope that this works and we're going to do this insane shit, um, (laughs) to try to get there. Um, so that was really important. And then kind of also looking at the, um, the set pieces in in that movie specifically, and then ultimately the, the camp movie as well, it was all about taking the familiar, and kind of twisting it, um, taking places that that seem kind of safe and embody like the kind of classic American suburban dream, um, and and making it ripping it apart and covering it in blood and destroying it um, was was something that maybe I should explore in therapy. But also, why not these movies? <laughs> Speaking of things ripped apart and covered in blood, we have to talk about the bread slicer. I I can't stop thinking about the bread slicer. Poor Kate. <laughs> What's your favorite gory moment? across all these films because you go all out on the gore you've got for me the standouts you've got kate's head in the bread slicer sarah's hand in the third film even alice's leg in the second film the bone popping out of the leg what's what's your favorite kind of gross out gory moment across the films i think my favorite moment has to be the bread slicer and and part of that is because it's so insane and also hopefully very kind of emotionally disturbing because you are far in that movie and you've, you know, hopefully gotten to love Kate. Um, Julia, who plays Kate also was just so incredible and believable and visceral in her kind of fear and pain. Like as she was screaming as, as our, you know, stunt actor was pushing her towards this empty space where there weren't blades. It was just so awful. And we actually took that production sound and I would use it and blare it throughout the grocery store when we were filming other scenes so that, you know, Kiana and Olivia could hear it when they were at the lobster tank and we were filming and while, you know, um, Josh was over in the corner and things like that. So to me, that was just like next level and just like crazy. And like, what are you talking about? You're going to put a human head through a bread slicer. I love it. It was in the, it was in like the first draft of the first script that we did. And, um, and I'm just so happy that we got to do it, but I have a problem with bones breaking. 
Um, so <laughs> actually Alice's leg in the second movie is the one that I cannot watch. Like every time it happens, I shriek, I cover my eyes, I have to hold my ears. It was terrible editing that and then mixing that because it actually makes me feel like viscerally ill. <laughs> so yeah, that, 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 that's, my, that's my second moment for sure. Speaking of the second film then, let's talk about the C. Berman Ziggy twist. Was that always part of the kind of arc of that film of setting up, you don't know which sister this is going to be, or you think you might know who it is, but it's maybe not who you think it is. Can you talk about that reveal of, of Ziggy being being Christine? Yeah, I think that that was part of it because I, it was this thing where we loved the idea of introducing the character of C. Berman as as maybe the key to to helping everyone in '94 kind of end the curse for real. Um, but we felt like if we knew who it was at the beginning of '78, then the, a big like amount of tension would be deflated because you know that you're kind of walking towards the doom of of the other character dying. So we were definitely trying to always thread that needle and hope that people were guessing of like, it could be, is it Cindy? Is it her? Who, which one? Um, and I think that ultimately, I, I hope it works. I think that, that the end scene with um, with Ziggy and Cindy is so brutal um, to me when they're, when they're dying out in the field. Um, we shot that movie last. That was kind of the last piece that we did in our 106 days. And, um, and I was so tired by that point and the crew was so tired. And I just remember being like more blood, more blood. Um, but it was very effective and it was very like, kind of, it, it was sad. Um, it was sad shooting that it was sad shooting when Sadie is on the, um, the gurney and realizes that it's her, that her sister died. Um, Again, it was like really, it was really very kind of special and weird to have these moments of, of emotion and sadness amidst um, amidst slasher movies. Something that I found really interesting is that watching part two and then watching it again when you've seen part three, especially all of the young Nick Good stuff plays out as a very different film. First time around, you feel kind of sorry for him. You're like, oh, yeah. this guy, he's just a nerdy guy and he's being pressured by his family into following this lineage and and kind of maybe that's not who he is. The second time around, <laughs> oh, that guy, because he has that whole conversation with him where he's like, before my father died and talking about the legacy of the family yeah. that's been handed down to him. And you have that moment when he finds some of the bodies and he literally has blood on his hands and the other counselors saying, did you do this? And can you talk about seeding all of that stuff? Because it plays so differently before and after you know. But obviously, the after you know is in the next film. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, that was, it was, it was very, um, it was it was interesting because I had to talk to Ted quite Ted who plays young Nick Good quite a lot about it um, to try to make his character feel very true to he he's just chosen when when seventy eight happens he's chosen to to take up the mantle of his family but he's done it kind of intellectually he doesn't he hasn't yet seen firsthand what that violence will actually be and what that means and he is still a kid kind of grappling with it but at the end of the day he had a choice. And and that's kind of the thing with the good family in every generation that I think makes them more insidious um, is that everyone has a choice and they all continue to kind of like take this thing, be entitled to this other world um, and do this. And so it was very interesting kind of like, we talked a lot about actually a few good men and, and the idea of like, you need me on this wall, you want me on this wall. And like, and Nick kind of like, 
giving himself that speech of like, you got to break some eggs to make an omelet. And that was very much kind of the, the, the emotion um, happening behind young Nick. But, but he also loves Ziggy. And, and I wanted to keep that kind of real and feel grounded too. Um, but ultimately, you know, I don't know how you can have real sympathy for him. Um, he, he knew what he was doing and, and he still did it. And, and he didn't stand up for Ziggy at the end either. Um, but, the, but the hope was very much like you said, that while you're watching the second movie, you feel like, oh, now I understand the sheriff from the first movie. He, he went through this traumatic thing when he was a kid and maybe he did the wrong thing for not standing up for the girl he loved. But now going into the third movie, we're going to see them come together and kind of like shady side and Sunnyvale hand in hand. And, and obviously that's not at all what happened. <laughs> You mentioned Dina and Sam's relationship being echoed in part three with, with Sarah's relationship as well. It also struck me a little bit maybe with part two with Cindy and Alice that maybe it's not as overt, but there is something in there. There is definitely a history between those guys. Can you talk about those echoes of the same sex relationships across all three generations of the story? Yeah, I think that like the the relationship between Alice and and Cindy is an interesting one. It was not kind of an intention of the narrative to make them feel like they were in love, but there was certainly this exploration of what female friendship is and kind of what female relationships are and and, and a little bit of kind of that, you know, I, I spoke with Ryan quite a lot about her character um, and she did her kind of her own backstory work. Um, on what Alice's world was. And, and Alice was definitely, she was who she was in 78. She would be very different if she was in 94, I think is, is, is the best way of saying it. And ultimately, I think it was just about showing like how you can have this love for another person. And it's hard to be true to that when all of the other kind of circumstances of the world are happening around you. And that's what we wanted to reflect with Cindy and, and, and Alice as well. And, you know, it was really kind of it was it was also tricky because one of the things we wanted to do was show how Cindy and Alice came back on the same page. And and that was also supposed to be a reflection of how Cindy was coming to terms with how she had dealt with Ziggy. She was kind of healing that relationship with her relationship of Alice. So there were a lot of kind of, of those moments um, that we were hoping, hoping to achieve. Talking of echoes then, let's talk about 1666, because I love the way that you kind of mirror the casting from the first two parts into the third part. Can you talk about reassigning those roles and working out who was going to play who? Yeah, I think that was also one of kind of those ideas that that I had before we started writing the scripts. Um, I think I big fan of of all the Back to the Futures of Quantum Leap. Um, I love the idea of kind of seeing cycles of time and and generational mistakes. And uh, for me, the idea of like soulmates, the idea of like maybe history can write itself this time around was just like things that I personally was interested in. And it made sense to kind of, it felt like the the overarching narrative would perhaps be made a little deeper if we got to see the same faces in these roles. Um, and, and also like kind of selfishly, it was a way of like, to be able to revisit people that had that had died, um, and, and so you know, if you notice, like most of the characters that die in the in 1666 are ones that lived in in the other movie, and vice versa. So it was kind of like a nice way to be able to to kind of resurrect people, and while also serving our, our bigger narrative um, of the idea that like what will what should be will ultimately be. You just have to give it time. I mean, one of my favorite twists across the whole trilogy is that 1666 
isn't just 1666. Uh, I love the title card that comes up halfway through 1994 part two. (laughs) That just felt like a really playful moment. When did that come up to basically have a second title card in the middle of the movie? That was that was also in the first drafts of the of the first script for for that movie. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it was because kind of I w- you know I was a teenager in the '90s and Tarantino like really like influenced my my understanding of what filmmaking could be. It just felt like that like big fun fuck yes moment. Like we're coming back. We're gonna finish this, and I just wanted it to feel crazy. <laughs> um, and I was so happy. No one ever batted an eye. I thought that maybe I was gonna have to be like guys, please, like, and beg kind of the studio or my producers. And everyone was like, this is sweet. Like, let's do this. So I'm really happy because I also love that moment. And I'm glad that they they let me, they supported it. And then it didn't have to become a conversation. And was it always the plan to bring it back to the mall in 94 part two? Was that always going to be the setting for the showdown? Yeah, we basically, there was, there was a very early draft where it didn't exist there. It existed in, um, kind of this church setting, which was uh, the echo of kind of where the mess hall was in 78. And then we, we, I forget at what point, it was pretty early in the script stages that we were like, wait, what are we doing here? The whole thing is seeing how these places change. Why are we not going back to the mall, which is the quintessential 90s place? And why don't we make that the place where it's been the mess hall and then it, that's the same setting as the camp in 78. And it's the same setting as the, um, the town in, in 1666. And so ultimately that's, that's obviously what we, we ended on and thought it was perfect for that. And it gives you that amazing moment that harks right back to that opening scene with my Hawk totally. <laughs> with, with the, uh, the shutter in the bookshop won't go down yeah. where they've got their plan to trap all the killers. And it just takes you right back to that experience of watching the first film again. When did yeah. that pop up? And it kind of like justified a reason, you know, one of the things we wanted to do was have the group kind of built out a little bit when we got back into 94 part two. And, and Martin was such a character that I loved in the first movie. And by having him be the, the janitor in the mall, there was like a reason for them to recruit him. They needed his, his kind of knowledge of the ins and outs. And so, you know, Martin becomes the audience's kind of eyes and point of view going into the part two and being like, are we, what, what is happening? Like, are we really doing this? And so um, it all, it all kind of fell into a place. I love the way that it all comes together in that third film, that this whole trilogy is about the haves and the has not have nots, the lineage of men seizing power, especially at the cost of women, but also rooted within these kind of small town ambitions, the, the goods they're not going after, they're not ruling the world. They're just sort of seizing a small amount of power in a small town. And you get the sense that this stuff is sort of happening everywhere. And that with 1666, it's all rooted in history, in American history, in colonial history. Can you talk about the themes of the trilogy as a whole and how that's rooted and how that plays through all three films and this revelation of good is bad and Seraphia was not a witch and yeah it all comes together yeah that was i mean that's that you have it right there it's it's this idea of the haves and the have-nots and the idea of kind of um people who have been historically kind of oppressed and 
put on the outside, told that they're not good enough, that they're not deserved of this of this kind of um, better world. Um, and and it kind of also exploring the idea that history is told by the victors. And, and that's not necessarily always the kind of the truth behind what happened. Um, and, and yeah, there, I think there's something quite insidious about a, a person, a man in this case, who feels entitled to something, so entitled that they're willing to kind of go to this extreme of, of scapegoating in, in innocent, two innocent women, young women, um, who, because of the world that they live in, are perfect targets. Um, so that that was kind of all that we were looking at. And then and then also to your point, like the good family, yeah, they're living in this world. They're not taking over the entire planet. They're just, they're the kings of Sunnyvale. Um, and that was just this exploration of the banality of evil, I think. And the idea that like, yeah, it's just this fucking dude. It's just this dude. And and what are his ambitions? His ambitions to have this like giant, ridiculous TV, to have these like stupid posters of like motivational things like what? And I think that that unfortunately is, I don't know. I think that that's very true that at the end of the day, like evil isn't always that like kind of mustache twirling, you know, I'm going to take it all kind of thing. And, and that makes it honestly a little more terrifying. I could honestly talk to you about this all day. I have so, so many questions that I haven't been able to get to, but I'm aware our time is very nearly up. So I'm going to finish with a question that I'm sure you can't tell me the answer to, but I'm going to ask it anyway, which is who took the book at the end? And I guess as a follow-up to that, what sort of form do you see that answer taking? Do you have another trilogy in you? Do you want to do more Fear Street? Do you think that could be a one-off or where do you think that goes from there? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I am not going to say who took the book at the end, but I mm-hmm. but I will say that the the idea there was that yes, they've killed the good family, but evil still exists in the universe of, of Fear Street, of Shady Side, and Sunnyvale. And the question is, is what will humans do with that evil? And so there's very much kind of this idea of what another trilogy could be, what standalone movies could be. How do we how do we continue to live in the universe of Fear Street where that is the central question of like evil's out there. What are, what are we going to do about it? Um, so, yeah. Well, whatever it is, I can't wait to see it. Thank <laughs> you so much, Lee. It's been amazing to talk to you about these films and congratulations, not on one, not two, but three <laughs> films. That's an incredible feat. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. And yeah, I'll, I'll come back whenever. Let me know. <laughs> Thanks, Lee. So that was Lee Janiak, and now it's our turn to dig into the Fear Street trilogy. So first up, let's talk initial impressions. What did everyone think of these films? Uh, Amon, let's start with you. How did you land on the Fear Street trilogy? I really, really liked it. And I think it's actually a flex that I don't think the film culture has given enough credit. You know, this is a franchise of really great horror movies, really satisfying horror movies released back to back to back convincingly going back in time with each installment and having themes that run through all of them. And then on top of that, it's directed by a woman. And on top of that, it's un- unapologetically queer. This does not happen often. <laughs> this thing is, sort of, is, is historic in more ways than one. And I don't think, um, you know, we, again, as a film culture, have really given it the due credit uh, that I think it deserves. It's, it's really quite impressive. I mean, that was part of my opening gambit to Lee Jeniak, which was, how do you break three stories in one that still has an overarching narrative, but at the same time, each film feels really distinct and is satisfying on its own? I think that's an incredible feat. This film feels like it hit 
nicely in terms of that wider Netflix audience that there was an audience there every week for these films coming out. But I agree with you. I think maybe the, uh, in inverted commas, film Twitter scene hasn't necessarily held on to these films in the way that they maybe deserve. Mm. Uh, but Beth, what about you? What are your thoughts on Fear Street as a whole? Uh, I, I completely concur. I think in terms of representation and pushing narratives in a way that still doesn't take away from genre is really important. Um, it's still very much a terrifying slasher franchise. I do have to say R.L. Stein has has a lot to answer for when it comes to my childhood. A lot of <laughs> sleepless nights. I didn't read the first street books. I did read uh, Goosebumps. Uh, I managed about two episodes of the show and then was far too scared to watch the rest of it. So uh, I was tentative when I came into it, but I do like that... I mean, aside from the the kind of reveal when we find out that Sam is in fact not a man, not a boy, it it settles very quickly into a very sweet romance between these two girls. And something else that I really enjoy about it is that with this anthology, but also I feel with horror and teen horror, especially we're seeing a really, really great variety of robust well-drawn characters teen characters it's you know gone are the days of like the chaste virgins and the bad boys although that was an awful lot of fun you know Mm -hmm. in in franchises like scream this you're starting to see really independent uh again a great melange of voices very uh self-reliant going out there and getting stuff done on their own gone are the damsels in distress and we're faced with this really really interesting new way of seeing young people in horror films and this is a a great example of that um and i really enjoyed it because because of exactly that i mean there's tons of stuff i want to pick up on there but uh for me i loved these films i think i liked each one more and more as they went on like I, i watched the first one and i had a really good time with it but there were also things at the back of my head where i think i was settling into the the rhythms the slightly heightened register that these films play on especially it throws you right into the shady side versus sunnyvale kind of conflict in a way that doesn't necessarily play out in a super realistic way and i think kind of over the course of these films, you get more of a sense of the world that it's taking place in, the world that these characters are living in, the sort of uh, the rivalries that these people are forced into, basically based on where they live for their entire lives. But I think once I settled into that, and in the second and third films, as it really starts to unpack that mythology, expand the mystery and explain things, it just got more and more satisfying as it went on, seeing this whole thing unfold. And at the same time, each film is just a really fun ride through a different era of horror history. I think it's kind of really, really good as a set of popcorn-y horror movies, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff going in on in there. And something I'm going to come back to in a few minutes is the way that it sort of adheres to, but also subverts the slasher genre. But first, I want to pick up on Beth saying that obviously these are adapted from the books of R.L. Stein. Uh, and Beth, you said you hadn't read any of these. I hadn't read any of these either. Goosebumps was a big part of my childhood. I had a bunch of those books. Um, I think probably like you, I was kind of scared, scared of the TV series. It was that Terrified. sort of sub-Buffy, like supernatural teen stuff, but at the same time, like had a bit of that element of like, oh no, bad things are going to happen. It didn't necessarily pull its punches as a young viewer. Amon, did you read the Fear Street books? Were you familiar with this world at all, this area of R.L. Stein's uh, uh, back catalogue? I had no idea. Uh, you know, back in the 90s, I was you know, watching uh, you know, Batman, the animated series, Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill doing their thing. That 
that was my <laughs> sorry let me just uh pinpoint that's eight minutes in before Amon mentioned kevin conroy there it is at least thankfully that's we got it out of the way straight <laughs> but yeah uh so i i had no idea and like i was even sort of semi-hesitant to sort of dive in given that my horror proclivities that have been well documented uh on this podcast um like I think it took me a week to sort of you know drum up the the, the bravery uh, after sort of you know, 1994 uh, dropped and people were going wild about it. I was like, okay, I'm gonna have to you know do I put on my big boy pants and be be brave <laughs> and uh, actually sort of do the work and watch it. But once I sort of started, you know, I really enjoyed it. Um, as I said, and it it definitely didn't skimp on the gore and uh, some of the scares were really really effective, but it wasn't like hereditary level, which I call sort of, you know, get right with God on Sunday type <laughs> film. It, it didn't quite reach that, um, thankfully. Yeah. Um, it was just sort of, uh, for the most part, fun. And uh, it, I think in, in helping with that, especially starting with 1994, you had obviously the 90s nostalgia, the needle drops, in addition to the well-drawn characters, as Beth said, I think that really helped draw me into the world. So even though I wasn't sort of familiar with R.L. Stein, uh, I quickly found myself uh, really enjoying what I was watching. I mean, first question from that, Amon, your big boy pants, do they have Kevin Conroy's <laughs> Batman on them? Is, is that to protect you against the fear? <laughs> but I, I want to pick up on something. Did you guys find these films scary? They're very gory. They're gorier than I was expecting, especially from an R.L. Stein adaptation. I know the books of these uh, apparently read quite a bit older than Goosebumps, which is very much horror for kids. But considering even that, uh, this, these are teen horrors, but they're 18s. They go to some very, very very gooey, gory, gooey places. Uh, but did you find them scary as two self-confessed scaredy cats? <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, I found it more brutal, as you say, in terms of, of gore and the violence that's enforced on these young people. But I also found it more than scary, incredibly sad. I found Mm. moments in this and again this is a testament to how rounded and robust these characters are and it's worth noting that we have we have our two heroines we have Sam and Dina but everybody in this anthology has a part to play and everybody is written well and empathetically and some of these kids don't make it and they don't make it in ways in which you don't <laughs> see coming it's mm. incredibly inventive and it's just very sad. They're, they're, they're missed when they go and you feel their absence. One scene that especially stuck out to me, which I'm sure we'll get to as, as we move on, but there was a scene um, with Ziggy and her sister, Cindy, in uh, the 1978 episode uh, that was relentless and sad and gut-wrenching and not least because guts were being wrenched. And <laughs> it was pretty tragic to, to watch happen. So I think... It's more of an emotional terror that you feel than than a kind of jump out of your skin, scaredy cat scare. It's more of almost like a slow burn slasher, if that's even such a thing. So yeah, plenty of gore, plenty of guts, plenty of big sprays of blood. And it's very fun in that respect, but it is tinged with this sadness where you think, oh no, that you know, this one. Oh, he's got an axe in his head. But he's just got this really <laughs> Oh no, what a shame. <laughs> oh, an axe to the head. Like an, oh. Just a big bloody axe to the head. After he's just done this really wonderful significant thing and you just think, oh 
God, mm-hmm. you just want to save them all. I wish I was watching this film sat next to you, but <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Lord, it's got a knife in his head. Oh, <laughs> I'm wiping away a tear, just more than anything else. It just, every, it, every kill comes with an, oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, dear. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> I, you know, you, you mentioned the uh, scene between Ziggy and Cindy. I, I like that scene, but I have questions. One specific question about that scene. Uh, which we may may get to later, but yeah, now I I did feel that it was scary. I just think that in a good way, the the jump scares as the trilogy went on grew fewer as the atmosphere got cranked up, especially with uh, seventy eight and sixty six. You really felt that creepiness in what they were doing visually, um, more so than just sort of the. Uh, the jump scares, which we had quite a few of in 1994. And I, I, I like that switch up. Uh, I felt it was really, really effective. Yeah, I agree with, with 1666, where it leans into the folklore levels mm. of horror. That I would put on par within Ariasta. What was it you said, Amon? Like the Sunday making right with God levels of horror? <laughs> <laughs> yep. That was where they lent into satanic rituals and a decent amount of body horror i will say that was genuinely scary and the the scene that culminates in the church with the children was shocking you know yeah. it was that it was, was super, really super dark. shocking and they Kids did that with their eyes plucked out and, and the yeah. pastor with his eyes plucked out and oh awful and you know again loved characters and there was that caveat that you know they do show up in other forms but at that stage you've become quite attached to the characters and you think no surely not surely not that character surely not this character but yeah no all the characters all the characters horribly, <laughs> horribly deformed. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think that was that was great and inventive, and such a great opportunity to to play with, kind of interrogate the genre in different ways as well, which is rare. Which is again one of the the great bonuses of this anthology is you get to jump between era and play with different types of horror, which is pretty great. I mean, maybe I'm very desensitized. I watch a lot of horror movies. I didn't find these really scary at all in the sense of jumping or feeling Mm. particular fear, but I totally agree that you feel really attached to the characters. And there is this real sense of melancholy that uh, we'll definitely get to down the line in terms of just these characters that you like who have been sold uh, this lie of being bad people, of being the bad town, who are basically just victims and not bad people at all. Um, watching them all be killed off in in horrible ways. For me, I mainly found these fun. I found them fun because they're so playful with the genre, with different eras of the genre, and exciting as well. Like For me, one of my favourite parts in this whole trilogy is that incredible moment in part three where it pops up when you go back to this, well, not present day, but the 90s and you get that title card that says 1994 part two and it comes up with a big shriek like a, ah! <laughs> and at that moment i was just like here we fucking go let's do this sheriff goods here we've got to kill sheriff good we've got to kill all of the monsters we've got to see off all the serial killers and it just had this real sense of growing momentum for me as each film went on like I said, I found it a little bit slow getting into the vibe and into the sort of feeling of the first film. But I thought as it barreled along, it just created this really enticing world, this really engaging mystery with these great characters and a sense that you didn't know necessarily who they were going to kill off. Um, mm. So on on that subject, let's talk about the ways that this kind of adheres to the slasher genre, but also subverts it a lot because the classic slasher thing is 
well, it's moralistic, isn't it? If you smoke drugs, <laughs> it's smoke drugs. Look at me, I'm such a square. If you if you puff the magic dragon, um, if, if you if you take drugs, if you have sex, if you're not looking after the kids you're supposed to be looking after, that is a one way ticket to Death Town, baby. Um, <laughs> And to an extent, that is what happens here. Like in 1978, in the Camp Nightwing uh, sequences, you have bad camp staff who get brutally dispatched. But at the same time, you get a lot of innocent characters who also get horribly murdered. I'm thinking especially in part two of that sweet little kid with the glasses. I mean, you don't see him die, but you hear his death and it's horrible. He's just this innocent kid. And I think it's playing a lot with that idea of who gets to die, who is designated as the people who should die, which really ties into the overarching mystery of of Sheriff Good and the different towns of Sunnyvale and Shadyside and which one's been sold as the bad town and which one is the virtuous town. I, I just thought that was really interesting how it played with those tropes. It sort of leaned into them and also really twisted them in ways that I didn't necessarily expect. Yeah, I would agree with you there. I mean, in terms of how it does fit into the slasher genre. I mean, that opening sequence from the first film, I mean, that's not much to scream if ever I've seen it. You've got the, even down to the casting, you've got Mayor Hawk, who is the child of famous parents, like with Drew Barrymore and Scream. And, you know, you just get her in this very short, tragic little sort of open air. And, and what a bold way to start that anthology, because as soon as I saw that, I thought, okay, so this is where we're going. We're going in a very, you know, an homage to films, which I, and I do love Scream. I love those, those sort of teen um, slashes from my youth, weirdly, considering I'm such a scary cat. Um, <laughs> so I thought we were going to go down that route. And then again, it, it interrogates the genre in a way where even when you begin to learn more about the characters, when you begin to learn more about the legacy, no one is who they seem for better and worse and not in a way where it's kind of calling a double bluff like with the serial killers and scream when it turns out you know there's two of them and it goes back and you know there's just this horrible fate of Sydney's mum this is this is something much more as nuanced as it can be in a in a slasher Mm -hmm. film and so yeah it it kind of sets off on this foot where you believe it to be one thing and then it becomes something far more complex and and interesting. I think, you know, much as I love the Scream films, as much as I love, I know what you did last summer, I think those films belong very firmly where they belong, which is of, of that area. And we're starting to move on now and see different explorations of, of horror. And I think this was, yeah, this is, this is interesting to me. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, you mentioned sort of the, the character, character deaths that really stuck with you. And in the first film, uh, not only is it the most memorable, memorable death of the entire trilogy with Kate and the, the bread slicer and the head and everything, but I really was <laughs> very, very brutal. But I, I really sort of took to that character and you don't really expect that you will in the first few minutes of the film because she's sort of a, a drug dealer, almost very stereotypical in sort of how uh, that character starts out. But the more you get to know her, you start to like her. And then you got the fact that Josh is also crushing on her and you know they seem to be getting together and that's sweet and that's nice and then you know didn't happen because you know she got dead 
by, by, but she got, she dead. got super uh, dead. She got <laughs> bread dead. Um, I mean, that kill is uh, that sort of blew my mind when I was watching the first film for the first time because there's quite a lot of brutality in these films right from the beginning. I think that opening sequence with Maya Hawke, um, it does that thing that Scream does as well of being like a, a fun, playful, but very tense scene. And then when the death comes, the sort of cathartic death, it's horrible it's like really violent and really distressing to watch but it's not necessarily super graphic or super gory so when you get Mm. to kate's head being shoved into the bread slicer i mean i think it's significant that they smash her face into a cake before they put her head through the bread slicer because it's weirdly (laughs) that frosting is like a bit of a softener of the whole situation but it's still messy and horrifying and her scream that's something that came up in the lee jeniak interview that her scream as her head was being uh sort of pushed through it was obviously an empty bread slicer when they filmed it um but (laughs) Apparently the actor, Julia Rowald, uh, did a really horrifying scream in that moment and they kept like blasting it on set at certain intense moments to get the characters and the wow. actors into the place that they needed to be. That would do it. <laughs> <laughs> it is really, really distressing. But that was something that I had in my notes from the first film. Like Kate and Simon, they're really likable characters. Did they deserve such brutal deaths? I think that's something that you're supposed to question because on that typical slasher uh genre trope they are drug dealers they are people who are dealing drugs and that is bad and they deserve to die but over the course of this film you really get to like them and you have a great time with them and they're the funniest most fun characters i think dina and sam are doing the emotional heavy lifting kate and simon they have their own things going on but they are kind of comic relief characters but who have something about them that you really like and then when you see them get killed so horribly uh, obviously yeah kate's head in the bread slicer simon gets an uh, i think it's the axe to the face or the blunt part of an axe to the face and his, yeah. his head is peeling off horrible mm. uh, you, you are left questioning like oh my god these really likable characters how why did they get killed so horribly but i think that's what you're supposed to be questioning because the whole idea of these this trilogy is that the town has been cursed by Sheriff Good and that people who aren't bad people are being targeted and being labelled as the people who should be killed uh, while Sunnyvale gets off scot-free. Yeah, I'll always sort of respect um, decision-making like that because it just, you know, even if it's not sort of, you know, all the way true, in the moment it feels like if characters like that are getting dead, then... No, it means that, you know, all bets are off in the sense and that, you know, nobody is safe to an extent. Um, because again, that, you know, you get to like them so much that you do think that, okay, maybe regardless of the whole drug thing, maybe they'll make it out of this. And I was really, and, and it felt like they were setting stuff up with sort of, you know, Josh and Kate. And, you know, I could see in another film, at the end of the film, like they sort of get together and then that sort of boyfriend and girlfriend. In my head, that was what I was envisioning yeah. happening as yeah. things were, and then, you know, Again, she got dead. So yeah, I I I like uh, I like that they made the decision to do that as much as I dislike uh, the fact that we're not going to see Kate uh, post nineteen ninety four again. <laughs> I think it really works when you go back to the nineteen ninety four part two as well because it means everybody involved in the mall in the final set piece has a real stake. They have all lost people. They have all been completely screwed over by this whole situation. Um, so I think it really adds to that sense of like fuck fuck this we're gonna destroy the, we're gonna kill sheriff good we're gonna stop the curse because we've had enough we've all lost people um so i think it really like sets things up for that final part of the story as well 
I think so. Apart from Martin, who has the best steak, where they just drive up to his house and say, hey, man, you want to kill a cop? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> I loved that character so much. I'm so glad they brought him back. That was one of the highlights of that 94 part two for me. He was just such a great character. Oh, Loads of fun babe. to hang around with. 1994 part two is far and away my favorite part of this entire thing. I absolutely loved it. And not least because, you know, on this podcast before, I've lamented how and a lot of times in horror movies, people make really dumb decisions. Like, you know, why are you putting your hand there? There's no good reason for you to do that. Why? Just, just, just go the other way. Run <laughs> the other way. What are you doing? And in the final sort of, you know, bit, the uh, 994 part two, there's so much smart decision making all across that. Just like, yes, if I was in this situation, of course I'd wear body armor and I'd pad up. That could sick. Why, why don't people do this more often than horror movies? <laughs> I, was, I was so excited and happy when I saw it. Like, yes. Thank you, Dina. You are smart. I love you. Thank you. They have a great plan. I think it's always really yes. enjoyable so to watch capable characters put together a really smart plan, even if that plan doesn't necessarily come off. Seeing that play out, like that's something I loved. Um, uh, no spoilers for it, but the uh, recent Halloween film, the final showdown in David Gordon Green's Halloween, mm. also has mm. that, like, do you know what? We're going to set something up. We're going to rig something up. We're going to enact a plan and you're going to see it play out. And it's going to be tense and it's going to be kind of scary, but it's also going to be super satisfying seeing these things yeah. fall into place and also maybe not. It's very mm. rewarding to see. I mean, it's quite a feat to put off. It was almost like a kind of DIY session where they've got the big pile of supplies in the middle of this mall at night time. I mean, in the wrong hands, that's just... That's just like an episode of How To. Or so. That's just like Art Attack. <laughs> Big Art Attack in the Shady Side also. Mall. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's rewarding in terms of character development. It's visually rewarding in terms of what they do with that beautiful neon palette. Yes. Um, which somehow, I mean, again, when I was going into this, I had some reservations because there are there's a natural progression between this and Stranger Things. Not just the cast, but, you know, the period setting and the, the very heavy Americanization of it in the mall, in the high school. And, you know, I was thinking, okay, well, I can see why they'd want to tap into this audience, but it, it works as a standalone as well. And I think, mm. yeah, that final showdown in terms of, you know, the neon paint and, and the, the tree in the middle of the mall and the shutters and the, oh gosh, and the um, serial killer showdown. Mm. where they end up pitting the serial killers off against each other in, in, and they've all got their own distinct mm. traits and styles of attacking people. The creep, oh, the creepy guy with the slow knife who gets um, Ziggy <laughs> in the in 1978. Yes. The, oh, chills, absolute chills. And he's he just moves in a very sinister, like glacial way. And to see them pitted against each other is really satisfying. Yeah, who are your favourite killers then? Do you have a favourite killer? Because that, that's the fun twist of the first film, right? It kind of starts off as a straight-up slasher film, and then it's like, oh, this entire lineage of the town serial killers are all coming back from the dead. Which one stood out to you? Sexy Razor Girl. Sexy Razor Girl was my number one. Ruby Lane. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, with, with the singing and the way that she sort of flashes the switchblade. Yeah. yeah. That is what I was going to say as well. You know, if you're going to kill me, at least sing me a song beforehand. <laughs> what song would you like, Amon? What, what do you want to go out on? Oh, man, it's a good question. What would I want to go out on? Hmm. 
I mean, because she seems to basically like straddle people before she slashes them to death, you could go for love on top. Who knows? <laughs> Bit of Beyonce. That's not a bad way to go. <laughs> Beyonce is never an uh, incorrect answer. Never. Uh, that's a good shout. I like that. Love on top. Do it. <laughs> yeah, I thought Ruby Lane was a really, really great character. I mean, obviously, you don't get a huge amount of background for these killers, um, but... I think they tap into just like very memorable visuals or kind of ideas like crazy girl with a switchblade. And I kind of was obsessed with the weird little baseball bat kid um, with the mask on (laughs) where you get that moment. I can't remember which film it's in. It might be in the third film where you see a tiny flashback and he's just like, like mulching a guy's head on a bed who has very Mm. clearly been dead for a long, long time, but he's still just going... <laughs> uh, tapping his bat on the uh, on the mushy it's remains of being this guy's face, then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is something we could all take from horror films. Like, do the double tap, make sure they're dead. Come on, really though. Well, you know, sp- speaking of which, like I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, the the Cindy and Ziggy scene, like that scene works on an emotional level, and I you know I like it for that. But how many times was that woman stabbed? <laughs> this I is mean, something for me that taps into the like heightened plane that this film plays on because some people get very badly hurt but kind of just carry on uh, in a way that I think you have to sort of just go with it and it's playing on that horror thing of like oh I got stabbed but it was only like a small blade and I'm slightly staggering around for five minutes and after that I'm going to be fine <laughs> because at the end of the first film um, obviously Dina gets sort of shanked by Sam with that little stabby uh, steak uh, wooden stake sort of thing yeah. Um, yeah. but she doesn't really seem to be that injured for the rest of what happens with her character in part two and okay, part three okay but that's that's one shot like this woman gets stabbed repeatedly <laughs> like she is passed out seemingly dead how many stab wounds in their chest and apparently CPR <laughs> brings her back I mean come on you just gotta come on. you just what is what is that Simpsons episode where they're just like wizards did it Oh, it's like wizards. This wizard. I, I'm sure it was more of this. Stop! Stop! She's already dead. <laughs> that was one of the few things that had me going like, huh? Like there was no body armor on her, so surely she's gone. She's Sadie fucking Sink. That's why she survived. <laughs> That's her superpower. Sadie I'm Sadie fucking, fucking Sink. <laughs> Just before we move on to some more chat about part two, the thing that we haven't really spoken about that much from part one is let's talk about the setup of of Dina and Sam, Um, because they are effectively our main characters throughout this whole trilogy. They recur across all three films, and it's their story that really kind of pulls us through this entire history of Shadyside. So I, I guess to start with my feelings on it, that was something that I kind of struggled with in the first film because I think I hadn't necessarily keyed into how intense the rivalry and the sense of bitterness between Shadyside and Sunnyvale is. I think you need to see the extent of the history of that town and all the serial killers and what that means, the fact that if you come from Shadyside, you've effectively got a bit of a death sentence on your head for no reason. I found it slightly difficult at first because we meet Dina and Sam when they've broken up and there's a lot of bad blood there. And I thought Dina came off as a bit of a dick when she's confronting (laughs) Sam and being like, you moved to Sunnydale, you abandoned me because you couldn't handle the truth. And it's like, mate, her parents got divorced. Like, I don't think she had much choice in the matter. But Mm. I think you really warm to those characters as they go on. And I think the fact that Sam 
does get possessed and needs kind of Dina's help to survive. Like that, I love that scene in in the first film where they basically have to drown Sam. They have to kill oh Sam before gosh, the killers yeah. kill Sam. Um, it was a great sort of fun horror twist. Um, but yeah, what did you make of those guys and their relationship? Did you buy into it? Did it take you some time to to kind of vibe with those characters, or did they have you from the off? Yeah, no, I did sympathise with Sam um, initially. And the mask that she has to put on as well under the eyes of her very conservative mum. And it is very rewarding to see her kind of stick up to her, even though she's instantly possessed afterwards. Never stand up to your mum is apparently the message we're taking away there. But <laughs> I think, yeah, it. I mean, it takes all sorts to show their devotion to each other. You know, I'm not sure if I would exude that sort of loyalty if my partner got possessed. I'd probably be like, peace <laughs> and just... Just leave it to it, to be honest. A classic Beth Webb. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Uh, My really? partner's possessed. Oh, what a shame. Uh, I'll see you around. The next horror film, next horror screening, I'm sat next to you, Beth Webb. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, in any situation, I will leave you all for dead. Just, just know that now. <laughs> Good to know. Look wow. out the window. But... Yeah, it does. It does come down to it, and I like that Sam becomes a character. You know, I, I said that there are no. It's it's a departure from the damsels of distress that we see in slasher films. You know, where the chased are the ones that kind of survive. We see her develop her own character and become. You know, especially in sixteen sixty six as well. She she gains her own kind of identity more and more. But yeah, it it was subtle after that the way that their romance became such a significant part of this anthology and um I spoke to them in a in a junket and they were saying how they enjoyed how it could be you know in spite of the guts and gore it can be a romantic series of films you can deem it mm. to be romantic another sort of anthology I was thinking of when I was when I was watching this was American Horror Story and the work of Ryan Murphy who does do a you know love or hate him and and at the moment a lot of people are in that latter camp <laughs> he does a lot for representation he does a lot for diversity on screen but the way that he handles characters in his anthologies are incredibly cruel and that's not to say that there isn't cruelty in these films at all, but where it's saved, you know, what's salvageable in essence is their romance, which remains, you know, very pure and very devout and very impassioned. And I think that is such a great way to move this story along. It feels so much more backable than, you know, a vendetta that's been held over years or, you know, a serial, someone who's been wronged in the past and burnt alive in a school or whatever, you know, from those, those things are, this felt a lot more, as I say, it felt like a departure for me in the best possible way. I've heard that what both of you are saying about Sam and Dina's relationship is actually why, as I was watching it week to week, uh, I preferred part two because I felt the way the sisterhood between Cindy and Ziggy was uh, drawn out in that film was much more effective than Sam and Dina's relationship in the first film. Um, and I really liked what they did with that. I also just really liked the fact that we are getting a focus on that relationship in a trilogy of horror films and it's queer and it's almost like not a big deal. It's not a plot point. It's just the way it is. And it's one of the reasons why, I mean, I know that, you know, this started development initially at 20th Century Fox and then they obviously got sort of bought by Disney and it was meant to be a theatrical set of films. But one of the many reasons why I like that sort of has come to Netflix is because as, as much as I love Disney, um, because I, they have this thing, let me just check. 
then you can compare it to Marvel Cinematic Universe. Is, is that right? MCU? MCU. Um, Rings Bell. Yeah. Um, okay, oh, what's cool. the one with um, the, the, the wars in the stars as well? That was the other one. That's, right, I think that's a Disney that thing. I, see, I didn't yeah, get yeah. this for a minute and I was like, oh God, you broke the <laughs> Oh God, he's gone. This is horrible. That's I like will... they've both been possessed by uh, by Sarah Fear or <laughs> Sheriff <laughs> Good and out. <laughs> This is worse than anything I've just watched in history. Like, this is me. This is my nightmare. Don't worry. It's a bit. It's all a bit. <laughs> but, you know, they obviously have a lot of stuff that I love, but one thing which they still need to do a lot better is queer representation and doing that in a really substantial way. And Netflix, you know, have no such qualms about that. And they have sort of put this front and center. And I just love the fact that, that exists in the, in the horror trilogy like this. I think that's really cool. I think you're right in the sense that it sort of doesn't draw attention to the fact that it is a queer romance and at the same time completely ties into what the whole Shady Side versus Sunnyvale thing is in that all of these characters that we're following are, are outsiders in a way. They are sort of against white, straight, male, heteronormative society. They are kind of living in the margins and being marginalised and being victimised because of that. Um, so I think it does a nice job of sort of never really like tackling it in an on-the-nose, head-on way, but it very much ties into the themes of what this entire trilogy is about. Mm-hmm. But you talked about then the sisterhood between Ziggy and Cindy, which I thought was a, there was a lot to that relationship, but I think it was easier to buy into straight from the off. You didn't need a lot of that context that kind of comes with the Dina and Sam relationship. Who expected the C. Berman twist? Who saw that coming? Because I don't want to be a Billy Big Balls, but I, I called that pretty early on. I was I was satisfied when they went that way. I will say Billy Big Balls does require some big boy pants. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> I've never heard that phrase before. I'm going to adopt it. <laughs> Billy Big Balls. I love it. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I really loved that relationship and the fact that they sort of, uh, sort of did detail on the backstory, making it clear why they start off as so contentious while also uh, healing that relationship as the story goes on, whilst also giving more backstory about the lore of the entire overarching trilogy all in one film. It's a really tight screenplay. And I think 78 at the time, I remember, think, I remember seeing a lot of sort of chatter on Twitter that 1994 was much better than 1978. And I was one of the few I was like saying, actually, I, I like number two more than number one. Yes, I completely agree with you. That was my experience as well. Having said it, like I bumped up a bit on elements of part one. Part two, I had a great time with, but it seemed like the general feeling was a bit cooler on part two than part one. Beth, what did you think of the C. Berman twist? Did you see that coming? Were you like, that's got to be Ziggy? I sort of did. And then I sort of did it. It's funny, like I did a, a junket thing with Gillian Jacobs and um, Ashley Zuckerman. And I just had to ask, you know, this was before I'd seen the third film. And, and I said, you know, could, I, could you just tell me what your characters' names are and, and what part you play in the trilogy? <laughs> Gillian Jacobs had to be like, no. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> I don't and you know were like, why I'm oh my here. gosh, I can't believe this interview is being so uncompetent. It was such a simple question. What's going on? <laughs> she just had to be like, no. Um, I can't do that. And that was really tough. But it, yeah, no, I, um, 
you know, the, at this stage, I was beginning to realize that things were not quite as they seemed. Everything seemed to be happening for a reason. And those reasons weren't necessarily the reasons that you thought. And I, I guess more than I, I guessed, I hoped that that was the case. I mean, I think they seed it in quite nice ways, obviously, when you see uh, the grown-up Seaburman. I think they're playing bits of Bowie music, I think, which is partly what tied me into like, oh, she's going to be Ziggy and not Cindy. I was just along for the ride. <laughs> Have a good time. But I, th- I think that plays out really nicely because it, they don't make it, again, a huge deal of it. It's a nice sort of mystery that's hanging on in the background and that sense of you don't know which sister necessarily is going to die. Um, and it really is brutal, though, those deaths at the end. But there's a lot of brutality in 78. And I think part of that, with the unfolding of this mystery, and in 78, I think you learn a lot more about the mythology of the curse and kind of how it works. And something that I was really struck by in that is the sort of tragedy of Tommy becoming the Nightwing killer. You see these glimpses in part one of this guy with a sack over his head and an axe and you're like, ooh, this big scary person. And you're like, oh god, it's it's Tommy. It's Cindy's boyfriend. It's this kind of character who, when we see him in those opening scenes, I thought he was a nice, likable character and he becomes this sort of inhuman monster with nothing behind him, just slicing people down. I thought that was a really effective twist on the slasher mythology as well. So in terms of really going to lengths to make you care about the characters, they really spent a lot of time making you care about Alice um, before she died horribly. That was mm-hmm. a real case of surveying what, much as they did in the first one. They took who would in any of the slasher films of the 90s and early noughties would have been, that's kind of like your Rose McGowan character. That's who ends up dead in a cat flap in a garage door. And you're like, well, yeah, because she's morally off the beaten track. But they really went to to lengths to make you really care about this person and understand their motives and why they are the way they are. And then she dies suddenly and and in a really horrible bone crunching way. Um, Again, that felt like an extension of the sisterhood, which felt, very, uh, very sweet. I just love what they do with the physicality of Tommy. Because uh, again, you know, you, we see it in the part one that that killer with the big bag over his head, and he does look like a really hulking dude. And you get to know Tommy, and it's just like this nice dude. You, you, do not, you don't expect that he is that guy at all because he just doesn't seem like the physical type. But they do a really good job of showing that change between nice, likable Tommy and, you know, undead killer Tommy. Uh, I think that they do that just on a physical visual level really well i mean if we're talking about the levels of kind of seeing characters in a heroic sense and then seeing another side to them we have to talk about nick good in part two Mm. because this Mm. was the the part (laughs) of the trilogy where it was like oh this is interesting like it i don't know about you it kind of took me a little while to click that oh this character who's cracking on with sadie sink in in camp nightwing in 78 is the sheriff who we saw in part one, who seemed to have a bit of a sketchy relationship to what was going on. And obviously we find out ultimately a very, very sketchy relationship (laughs) with what's going on. But this was part of what I was saying before in terms of how these films play really differently when you go back for repeat viewings. Because especially in the wake of part three, a lot of the dialogue, a lot of the relationship between Ziggy and Nick in part two plays totally differently that character (laughs) as we later come to find out this is his basically first time doing the curse sort of summoning uh the 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 spirit or whatever that's making this happen but we don't know all that context until after the third film and he has a lot of conversations with ziggy where you feel very sorry for him he's talking about the fact that he's 
just lost his father, that he's inherited this family legacy that he's really uncomfortable with. And you think it's this lineage of like, oh, I have to be a sheriff. I have to be this. It's the seventies. I can't just like be who I want to be. And maybe I'm a soft, sensitive guy who likes Stephen King and wants to hang out with the weird girl. And you're like, okay, I get it. Like you're a bit of a like inverted commas, nice guy, but you seem like a fairly nice guy who knows that his life is set in one direction, kind of wants something else. And then you watch it again, having seen part three, knowing what that legacy is, that it isn't that he's the sheriff, it's that he's doing a fucking curse and he's responsible for all of these people's deaths. It's really kind of horrifying, but it it plays so well a second time. I think that double meaning, for me, I didn't question that the first time I watched it. And when you go back and see it again, you're like, oh, you piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) That is, uh, that's such a good point. I mean, I am a sucker for a, for a kid's love story, and I did like that they found each other, and she found this this moment of reprise with this person, and they got to bond over their their nerdy shit. Um, maybe I'll just try and leave it as it is, <laughs> but it's great that it does have that other meaning. He looks like he's straight out of non-threatening boys magazine. He has that very like sort of clean cut look and he's a pretty nice guy. But there's all these interesting moments as well. I brought it up in the interview with Lee that he stumbles upon sort of several bodies of the massacre and he is confronted with the reality of like what he's unleashed. And he literally has the blood on his hands and he's sort of talking to the other counselor saying, ah, but it's like, mate, it's uh, this is on you. The blood is on your hands. Yeah. You've made me want to rewatch 78. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is worth kind of rewatching these because they, when you know the whole story behind it uh, and, and where the characters are going and, and the fact that good is evil and that Sarah Fear is not, it plays really differently. It's, it's very interesting. So obviously 94 and 78, they're playing in different eras of horror, different decades, but it's way different when we get to part three because we're going all the way back to 1666. I have to say, when I first heard about these films, when I first saw the trailers, first saw Netflix teasing them, the thing that really hooked me was like, oh, that's cool, 94. Oh, cool, 78. They're doing 90s, they're doing 70s. And then it's like, wait, part three, 1666. Holy shit, here we go. Uh, what, what did you guys think of the 1666 setting? What did you make of that part of the final film? It was bittersweet, I think, because they bring back a lot of the cast members. So it's literally like a walk down memory lane when Dina as Sarah walks through the settlement and you're like, oh, Kate, (laughs) you're alive, you're okay. It was sweet, but, but very sad as well. And you know what's coming as well. So you do sort of come into it with this sort of impending sense of, of doom, but it was great to see it play in a, in a new setting entirely and transfer everything that you knew into a completely different time. I think visually is very, very convincing. I think the accents uh, were not convincing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at, at best you can say, oh, they're doing like Irish accents, but they maybe have been settled for a while. Maybe the accent has morphed slightly closer to what we consider American today, but they all gave it a good go. It never really took me out of the film even if it wasn't the most successful element and of part how three. much is Lee Janiak paying you to say this? Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> nothing at all, nothing at all. You know, I, yeah, I didn't think, uh, the accents weren't great, but it didn't detract yeah. from the film for me. Yeah. Nah, I, I will say this, I think it's Kiama Madeira's best performance of the three. Um, she was really, really impressive all the way through, but I feel, feel in the 1666 accents notwithstanding, she's really, really good. The only thing, the only thing I don't really like about that casting per se is that 
you've got Kiara Madeira, who's very light-skinned, and then you have Benjamin Falls Jr. as her brother, who's very, very dark-skinned. And this is not a new phenomenon. Um, you know, I think I discussed colorism on uh, one of my Empire columns a, a few months back, but it just doesn't make... I mean, if, you, if you're going to do that, at least go to some lengths to explain that he's adopted or just, you know, have the, you know, dark skin or light skin match up. Uh, to have sort of a light skin sibling and then a dark skin sibling with no explanation just doesn't really make sense to me. Um, but regard, but p- putting that to one side, I thought Kiara Madeira was uh, very, very impressive, especially in 1666. Yeah, it was great to see um, Olivia Scott Welch back as well as a as a character because obviously towards the end of 1994 she's possessed and sort of she does a great job of being possessed like it's a very athletic performance <laughs> at that stage <laughs> uh, a lot of writhing around in car boots etc yeah she's she's kind of quite dead it yeah. evil daddy <laughs> exactly exactly but here she gets to in a, in a way relive her character development that she was she was undergoing in 1994 but here she gets to sort of grow as well as a character but oh my god it was stressful as if (laughs) my heart just went out to them because as if they just they hadn't been through enough in the first film and got what I would you know as much of a breather as you can afford in 1978 I mean it still worked great for them but this one my god they got put through it because now they were being I mean, they were being punished for their otherness as it was and now they were being confronted with it in I mean, obviously there's the hand severing, which was the big, yeah. the big mm. no-no for me. I think that every- That is a huge oh. ouch. Oh. Like that is up there with the bread slicer for me is like the biggest, like, mm. oh my God, Jesus, no. Yeah, no, it was the bread slicer in that. It was the, the sister slashing in the, in the 1978 and this one, it was the hand. Just something to do with tendons and we don't get on. <laughs> <laughs> It's the fact that it's still hanging on a bit. Oh. That's what also got me. I don't know if you've seen Green Room. Yes. Um, which, again, there is a sort of machete through an arm, but it's not a, like a clean break. The, the hand is like hanging on by a little bit, and it's, oh, that really, really flipped my stomach. And probably have flipped all of your stomachs too, so yeah. you're very welcome. <laughs> Free flip. But yeah, that, that was awful. Down to, you know, it was just like they sat down and were like, okay, how many ways can we punish these two young women in? And we're going to do every single one of them. We're going to do every single one of them. Family dog, dead. Hanging it from a tree. Let's do that. Let's butcher her arm. You know, let's let's string this one up and watch her loved one get beaten up in front of her. It, multiple stabbings. This is really dark. <laughs> it's really dark. I, I, and I think yeah. it leans into that because, again, it all bolsters the fact that when they're going to end this curse, you want to feel that catharsis of... 500, 400 years of wrongdoing, of of horrible things that have happened to these poor people, all because the good family wants to be, I don't know, like mayor or sheriff of a small town in wherever the hell in America this is. Like, I I think that's something that I spoke to Lee Jeniak about, which was the sort of, it's about the power structures, it's about men taking power and demonising otherness. But also, it's not like this family is trying to take over the world or do anything huge. They're just taking jobs with like medium levels of authority in this small <laughs> town. Like that's what it's all for, really. All of this bloodshed, white supremacy, man. Man, yeah. The, that's something that I really liked about sixty six. I think it's a harder sort of horror sell. I know it's leaning into the witch and those kind of folk horrors. For me, it was the sort of least scary of the three films, and scarier in the sense of the social horror of 
the literal witch hunt that unfolds. But I think it did a really good job of mirroring the characters across various decades. So obviously you get the continuation really of Dina and Sam's relationship through Sarah and Hannah. You also get these little analogues of like Julia Raywald's character. Obviously Kate in the first film is a drug dealer and she's the one going, taking the berries and encouraging this kind of uh, hootenanny in the woods at night. Um, I I liked in that sense as well that, again, it's not necessarily the genre that you do this with um, in part three, but it's still a teen horror movie. Like part one and part two, they are teen horror movies and they take this setting in 1666 and still make it basically a teen horror. It's teens against the world, against authority. But a lot of very dark shit goes down and it is horrifying. I I found myself hooked in the 1666 part, waiting to find out how the Sarah Fear stuff was going to play out because she has been so wronged that you fully believe, oh, this girl is going to curse this town. She is going to like unleash hell. And so the extra realization that it wasn't her, that she hasn't placed a curse on the town, that it's all coming from the good family... I think hit in a big way. Mm. Yeah. I have a question uh, about the mirroring of these characters, which is obviously all the 1666 stuff is a vision that Dina is seeing, having reunited Seraphia's hand with the rest of her body. And mm. when we see her looking in her reflection in the water, uh, Elizabeth Scopel is the face that, sh- that Kiana Madeira sees reflected back at her so it's her in the body of seraphia but she is not seraphia whereas everybody else in the town we see them with the faces of the characters that we've known from the previous films do you think the characters that we're seeing are the sort of direct descendants of the characters that we know or do you think this is all part of dina's vision her projecting personalities and faces that she knows on these kind of roles that people are playing in the 1666 story i hadn't even thought of that (laughs) (laughs) i think it's the i think it's the latter it would make more sense to me uh, than everyone in the vision being descendants. That just seems like a, a, a bridge too far. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, some of them are because they're obviously good. Yeah, uh, Solomon Good is clearly a descendant of uh, of Nick yeah. Good, or the other way round. But it struck me that some of the others, it might be Dina sort of projecting the roles mm-hmm. of people that she knows or who have been caught up in this curse onto people who were there from the very beginning. I think she's lived through a hell of a lot in like the past day or so. So if Leo <laughs> wants to project that trauma yeah. onto the surrounding town of the body she's inhabited after trying to save her now possessed lover and watching her friends and peers die. Yeah, probably. That's probably it. I love that that is a sentence that is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would, that would make a lot more sense. I think I was just so, I was so in it and so in the horror. I didn't really um, think about the makeup of the town. Um, but that that would make a lot of sense. Got a couple more questions for you. Things that to me felt kind of open to interpretation. So I want to talk about the black goop that is growing and festering <laughs> under the city as this curse is unfolding. I think you get a sense of what that is doing. We see that the sort of uh, serial killer monsters are coming from there, that they are reborn from that goop. And that's kind of why they can't be killed because the goop is just going to reassemble and retake the shape of the serial killers. But also I think what is nice is that as you get to learn more about the curse and more about what's going on, they don't do a really granular explanation of the black goop. Do you think that's been under the town the whole time? Do you think that's something that kind of begins and grows over the cur- over the course of like another iteration of this curse playing out? How, how did you see that black goop situation? 
<laughs> Which, incidentally, great name for a band. Great name for a band. Also something I've encountered through many house shares living in London. It's a black goop situation. Usually in the bathroom, please, landlords, install better little <laughs> weary extraction fans in <laughs> The true horror of history is bad extractor fans in your bathroom. Again, something I hadn't considered. That definitely, to me, felt like... The most, that was the biggest story, but to kind of R.L. Stein for me was this goopy substance that kind of festers under the town. That felt very kind of canon to me for him and his his vein of horror. To me, that's been there since, 60, since 1666 and the curse is, when the curse was first sort of born. And that's just been growing and growing and growing. Um, and I love the fact that they don't sort of really explain it. Um, it just sort of is what it is. And, you know, they, I don't think they need to, you know, it's something that's been festering within the town for years and years and years. And yeah, it's just been growing more and more powerful. Mm. That actually reminds me of, <laughs> as Beth knows, I've, I've been replaying The Last of Us 2. And the Black Goof def- definitely reminded me of some of the uh, monsters that you have to fight in that. Uh, for people who have played The Last of Us Part 2, I've just done the Rat King section. You will know what that means. Um, it's still incredibly scary and it still makes my palms very sweaty, but I did it on hard level because I'm just that good. And that's another reason why I would never play that game. <laughs> Ever. I think for me, something I really liked about the Black Goop and the fact that it is festering and it's sitting underneath the town is this idea that the whole of Shadyside and Sunnyvale it is literally built on the foundation of this curse, of this horrible incident. And that in a grander sense, if this is a story of America, it's about digging into the dirt, finding the stuff that's mm. festering underneath and airing that out so that everybody can move on and so that these cycles of, of violence and mm. haves and have-nots can can finally end, that it, it ties into this whole feeling of, uh, hey, we, we've got to go back into our history and and look at the people who have been wronged, at how this history has been told, and who has been presented as the good guys, who has been presented as the bad guys that maybe doesn't align with the truth. Digging that stuff up and, and exercising those demons in a in a very literal way. I mean, that the the mass is it's horrible. The way uh, all the flies, mm. all the buzzing oh, around yeah. it as well. Um, super gross. And then I think on the opposite end of the spe- spectrum, there you have. The Red Moss. So I want to ask you guys about the Red Moss, which is this recurring visual motif that seems to spring from from Seraphia's resting place that kind of becomes, I think, this symbol of of Seraphia, of the truth kind of growing and, and spreading out as counteracting maybe that black goop. What did you think of that that recurring look and feel of the Red Moss that seems to attract itself to, to Dina and Sam and comes very much from Sarah's resting place? I mean, I think that just leans further into, I mean, in terms of symbolism, I'm, if I'm completely honest, not entirely sure what I make of it, other than it, you know, it comes from the ground, it's porous, it's red, it's it's come from a place of violence and passion. But I think, again, it just it just leans into the aesthetic of this film and how it goes beyond the physical acts of violence to something a lot more ingrained in the in the earth it's so interesting what you were talking about Ben though in terms of you know kind of digging into the earth and there's this black group it's also countered by this kind of natural progression as well that seems to 
counter what we're seeing underground. This is on the surface. This is coming out in plain sight and it's persistent and it's not going away anywhere. Oh, I'm, I'm becoming like enamored with this as I'm talking, you know, <laughs> love wins, guys. Yeah. <laughs> love wins always. So I, I guess in that, that respect, again, this is making you think about it more and more. That's, that's probably what it is. It's a counter to this ugly and cruel kind of tar-like substance that's festering away and has done for years. There's this persistent natural vibrant thing going up on the surface that is kind of a beacon of truth and and love okay now the three of us have wanged on about this enough let's take a few listener questions uh, i think a bunch of people have seen these films because of the fact that they were released on netflix so we have a fair few to get through and we're going to start with Pablo's Vault of Horror. Hello, Pablo. <laughs> he asks, uh, which of the supernatural serial killers would you like them to focus on if they do a spin-off? For me, it's Milkman Dan or Baseball Doll-Faced Boy. These names may not be accurate. Uh, I guess we spoke about our favourite killers, but if, yeah, if you were going to have a uh, a spin-off of this, another Fear Street film, or maybe another Fear Street trilogy or whatever, what form, uh, which killer do you want? to see a little bit more of from these films. I'm sticking with, with Sexy Razor Girl, and I'm sorry that I don't know her name already. <laughs> what was her name? No, sorry? that is the name. We've established, <laughs> established that now. It's well, canon. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just update the Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> because I think the groundwork was laid for her quite um, thoroughly in the second film with her mother and why she became who she became. So I think there's there's already kind of a tease as to what her backstory is there. She didn't get to do much else other than be sexy with a razor blade. And so it would be interesting to see her story and the world that she belongs to. So I'd be I'd be voting for that as a as an origin story. I want to know more about baseball dude. Was he good at baseball? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> These are the important questions that we need to know, okay? If he's as good at hitting a ball as he is at slightly, lightly mulching someone's head in, then he'd be uh, <laughs> yeah. knocking it out of the yeah. park every time. Like, it just reminded me of, um, I think it's John, no, not John Wick, The Raid 2, which oh. has another villain with a, who wields a baseball and so who nice. can wield a baseball with a ball in really sort of you know, brutal ways. And I feel like if we get uh, a film centered on Baseball Dude, uh, as is uh, his name, now canon, I, I feel like we'll get more sort of brutal kills in that vein, which might be fun to see on screen. Yeah, ba Baseball Kid's uh, actual name is Billy Barker. No, um, it's Baseball Dude. It's Baseball no. Dude. It's <laughs> official. Baseball Billy, Baseball Billy Bickles. <laughs> <laughs> yes, with his Kevin Conroy underwear on. Um, <laughs> Looking at the list of names of people, obviously there are some that we focus on more than others. There is one who very much intrigues me, and in fact, I think Lee brought it up in the interview. There is one called the Humpty Dumpty Killer, and I just Ooh. want to know what that guy or gal's deal is. Presumably, they are pushing people off walls and having them have a great fall and cracking their heads open. Um, that maybe would have been a nice way to, you know, mix it up. There's a lot of knives, there's a lot of axing, but pushing, pushing off walls, cracking heads, sounds like a good time to me. Can I actually tell you what I did find really scary in the anthology is when the kids weren't targeted by the serial killers. So when they would walk, there's a, there's a great moment with Martin where one of the serial killers walks past him and he just has to trust that the curse will work in the way that it's been, he's been told that it'll work in. And, and he has to just sit there. And the same happens with Josh as well. They just have to sit there very still with their heads down as these 
weapon-wielding murderers walk past them in they're in plain sight so Mm. that i found really interesting and scary that that was a real source of dread for me i think that's again a cool twist on how all of this works in that like yeah like you said if you if you're not touched by that blood then you're all good but you're also there going like oh my god please don't kill me Mm. and then also if you have been touched by the blood it's like oh shit i'm a marked man or woman and i've got to work out something to do to get this off me because all of the serial killers are going to be coming for me. Uh, I thought that was a great twist. So we have another question. This is from at Arlo's dad. Uh, (laughs) Knowing what we know now, why did the sheriff post the it's happening again note to adult Ziggy? So this, I believe is at the end of the first film, we see Sheriff Good going and slipping a note under the door of C. Berman uh, saying it's happening again. And for me, I think this is because I actually think his relationship with Ziggy from part two, from Camp Nightwing, is very genuine. I think he Mm. genuinely really likes her and has this feeling of like, oh no, I unleashed the curse and everyone's dying, but I don't want the girl I like to die, which, fuck you, man. You're you're killing all of these innocent (laughs) kids and you're like, oh, but I'm crushing on on Sadie Sink. Mm. Uh, So I'm going to try and save her. But I think there's maybe something genuine there. And I think it's maybe him giving her a heads up saying, hey, cursy stuff is happening again. Um, please stay away from it all. It was my reading. What about you guys? Or maybe that's his way of being like, hey, you up? You know, that's his like... <laughs> it, what, it's a booty call? I need, I need an excuse to talk to her again. How about a slew of... Uh, hey, you up? Like, it's happening again. <laughs> hey, girl. It's happening again. What are you doing for dinner? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, maybe that's just like it. But, and I, I, do, I do agree with you, Ben. Like he definitely, there is a there is a genuine care for her, which is made apparent in the third film when she is the bait for him. And he yeah. shows up and is g- genuinely stunned to see her there, invested in it. So yeah, I would, I would agree that maybe it does come down to something, which is, yeah, pretty sick in the scale of things. Mm. What a shit bag. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think it, it's rooted in something sincere or as sincere as he can be as a person. I love that sense of things echoing across time. And when in the 94 part two, when uh, Nick Good enters the mall and Ziggy uh, carries him with the, with the blood, uh, mm. with the neon tinted blood, I think it's such a great moment, the turning of the tables there. Because yeah, like you said, he turns up and he's like, what are you doing here? Oh my God, you're in the middle of the mall where all the bad shit's going to go down. I think there's still genuine care there. So for her to then turn the tables on him feels like a really, really great fuck you. Okay, the next question comes from Sean Neal, who asks, what's the difference format-wise between Fear Street and Sherlock? And I guess this is something that we haven't talked about that much, but it's something that I completely love about these films, that they are three feature films it is a trilogy. How how many times have you seen a trilogy that has basically all been shot at once and released mm. a week apart? Obviously, they shot all of Lord of the Rings back to back, but we had to wait a year between those for obvious reasons. But with Fear Street, they, they just went and made a horror trilogy like straight away. I think that's really cool. And obviously, the story is an overarching story as well as the individual ones. Uh, but yeah, where does this sit for you in terms of I guess we do get some things that are miniseries these days. I guess Sherlock, as the comparison, is that each of those episodes are 90 minutes. They are three-episode series uh, that tell sort of individual stories, but usually there's a bit of an overarching story as well. Where did this sit for you between being a trilogy of films and maybe some kind of miniseries or or with all those boundaries blurring? 
Hmm. It's an interesting question because, you know, before you said that, I looked at it as a trilogy of films, but, you know, in prepping for this podcast, I know that there's already been some talk about making, you know, Fear Street into a franchise and doing more Fear Street films. And there's a whole lot more years uh, for them to, <laughs> to go to should they sort of, you know, go that route. But I, you know, given the way the characters sort of uh, weave in and out of the trilogy, I, I view, I view the view as a trilogy of films, not least because I, I, I think if they do go the, the, which I just said in terms of having more Fear Street films, I doubt will be with this same set of characters. Then the, what, what, let's say if they do a whole new Fear Street trilogy, that will be distinct from this trilogy. So I'm still going to look at it as a trilogy rather than as a mini series with the same characters running through, um, all, all episodes, uh, if you will, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think there's there's a natural kind of, when it comes to Netflix as well, and I think it's something to do with, and this makes me sound like the old man yelling at the cloud, but like with these <laughs> young folks today and the, the way in which young people see, or, or not necessarily see films, but, you know, expect films and expect that dirty word content, um, that is what I think has has led to the reasoning of of dropping them a week apart to the point where, you know, when I saw they were a week apart, I actually bristled a little bit and was like, hang on, they're not releasing these all on the same day? This is, what is this? <laughs> so I think with that respect, in terms of under, under that Netflix format, in terms of it being a teen movie for, for young people today, for me, it was always going to be at the most a week apart just because of the way that, that, uh, the young people consume storytelling now I think maybe that's just me whereas I think with something like Sherlock Sherlock definitely had a television feel it had, certainly had a big scale in terms of you know what they were accomplishing but it was a very open and shut case each time and and fit very nicely into a television format as well so yeah I think for me it was yeah it was always going to be a, a week or so apart because it's Netflix because it's a teen movie franchise I couldn't imagine that happening now on Netflix. I couldn't imagine them announcing an anthology and then making you work, wait a year. If it was like to all the boys I've loved before or something like that, where it was, you know, never meant to be an anthology. It's just, you know, some of the greatest films of all time. And so the demand was always going to be met. Ben's nodding. <laughs> and, um, yes, great films. <laughs> Third one. So lovely. Who knew? And talk about a soundtrack, but they're just joining us. Welcome to the to all the boys I love before for this special. And the to all the boys. P.S. I still love you. And to all the boys, always and forever love Lara Jean. Spoiler special. <sighs> but to me, the idea of of Netflix putting out an anthology and dropping them a year apart seems bonkers mm. to me. I just would never have seen that. Because I, I believe when these were going to be theatrical, obviously they were made by Fox before the Disney merger. They were going to be a month apart in cinemas, which I actually, I'm sad I didn't get to see these films with an audience because I think mm. that would have been a really fun way to experience mm. them. But at the same time, I don't know if they necessarily might have connected in the same way, waiting they a month as not. opposed to a week and relying on people getting out of the house and going to the cinema and making sure they've seen the other one so they can see the next one. I think Netflix kind of worked well for this format. I very much like to see them still as films. I guess if you wanted to break it down, you could envision it as maybe a six-part series of, of each film being uh, effectively two hour-long episodes, and especially with, with part three being the 1666 bit and the 94 part two section as well. But I think there's something really great in the idea of these being envisioned and shot and made with the idea of them being three films, of it being a film trilogy. And I think it does feel 
filmic. It's just mm. really that Netflix presentation that adds this extra element of, oh, what is this? Is this film? Is this series? Uh, because we're, we're not used to seeing any film that starts with previously on in a very TV <laughs> sense, but very much films for me. Netflix definitely was the best format for it. I mean, there's, there's such a thing as momentum and hype and, you know, grabbing the cultural zeitgeist and sort of, you know, maintaining that for multiple weeks. And I feel like the way that they did it, um, you know, it was just very conducive to sort of uh, what Netflix's platform can do. And as much as I would have loved to have seen it in uh, cinemas for that reason, uh, I think Netflix was the best, best way to go about this. Okay, so we have two questions from Ode Ollie. First up, what are your thoughts on why Sam was sacrificed, and I believe he means uh, targeted by the curse by uh, Nick Good? If Ryan Torres, the skull mask killer, had already been targeted, was it just because Sam had contacted Sarah Fear's spirit? Why do you think Sam was targeted when Ryan Torres had already done his sort of killing spree in the start of 94? The answer to this question is very simple. It's because Nick Good is an ass. <laughs> Good is evil, people. Come on. But she doesn't become a serial killer. She becomes possessed, doesn't she? She doesn't... I mean, would she become a serial killer if she wasn't bound to get... Yeah, I think that's what it is. She she um, has been targeted as the next person who will be a serial killer and maybe has a couple of people who she's been targeted towards, especially Dina. And I think for me, that's maybe the answer to this question, that... Uh, Dina and Sam and the others, they go to Sheriff Good when they're trying to work out what's going on and they're like, oh my god, there are dead serial killers coming back from the dead and and, and that is all happening. And I think it's maybe him going, these guys know too much. I'm going to do another curse. I'm going to target Sam. She's, she's going to kill Dina. They're all going to be wiped out and nobody is going to be on my case. I think they're maybe getting a little bit too close to the truth uh, and, and they let the wrong person know. Uh, and Nick Good is basically out to uh, to destroy any sort of thread of person who may be on his case. That was my way of reading it. I think that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, if you go down the route of maybe this kind of subconscious ancestry informing who he went over, which, you know, if you go back to 1666, both of those girls were, you know, potentially going to reveal who he was or, you know... Um, Sarah Fear was going to be. So with that respect, he would have gone for Dina. But yeah, with Sam, that's a bit more logical. Uh, okay, uh, Odolly's second question is, I guess, a wider one that we've kind of danced around a bit. But uh, yeah, there is this suggestion of having a, a Fear Street universe, basically, that there's a lot more that they can play with in this world. Will we see the return of Dina and Sam? All the backstories of the killers we only kind of glimpsed briefly in these films. I guess to open that up more widely... What do you think comes next in Fear Street? Do you want another trilogy? Do you think it could withstand that kind of multimedia, like, oh, this is a trilogy of films, but we have maybe one-off things, or we have a series that's also in that world, but telling a very different story? What do you want to see from Fear Street going forward? I want a Martin P. Franklin standalone film. I want Daryl Brickyus's <laughs> standalone film, because he yes. did so much in that tiny little... Um, like yeah, he just he just kind of got to show up in in the end and did a favor for did a, did a favor for Josh and then got to be this amazing comedic presence who also got to you know be useful and and had a, a good strong heart at the end of it, which is what I liked. You know, Josh 
didn't have to, I know they had stakes in it all, but essentially they were doing it for Dina and for doing it for, for a greater good. And I thought that was really, really nice. Yeah, I would, I would genuinely like to see a Martin <laughs> film. <laughs> that I, I wholeheartedly second that for sure. Um, I also want to know more about Ziggy and those intervening years between 78 and 94. I think that would make a really interesting film. You know, st- standalone will obviously work well, but I feel given how well this trilogy has worked in terms of, again, sort of, you know, really being an unexpected surprise and grabbing everyone's attention and, you know, having you know, people talk about it for weeks, uh, from, for multiple weeks straight, I feel like another trilogy would probably be, probably be the best way to go. I also just want to know more about the divide between Sunnyville and Shadyside. I don't feel like we've really got into the nitty gritty with that over the course of these three films. And that's something which they can still sort of explore in another First Street trilogy or standalone or what have you. It might be a good opportunity as well to bring Josh into the foreground and have him in detective mode. You know, we're talking about Sherlock. We could have him come in, you know, and make him the centre. And and he's got this kind of vengeance behind him as well after he lost Mm. his first love. God. And he was obviously very investigative right from the off. He's the one on the AOL message boards, like saying, oh, there's been another <laughs> killing. Look, here are all my newspaper cuttings. Mm. I think for me, I'm torn between the, the fact that this trilogy did something I've never seen in the horror f- in the horror sphere before. And maybe doing that again is like, oh, it's still doing the thing that no one else is doing. At the same time, I don't know, because this did a really great job of telling an overall story, but also picking up on these different eras and telling individual stories within that. I don't know if maybe next time I want them to see see them do something different, feeling really unrestrained from any kind of format and just think, what story do we want to tell? And then what is a cool way to tell that story? But at jumping off this, we had another question from Joe Scrabbles asking, what's your ideal Fear Street spin-off? I want the year and the horror subgenre, which Ooh. I think is a great question. <laughs> maybe to give you guys time to think, uh, I would quite like to see some kind of like, 1920s monster movie like a Nosferatu universal monster situation maybe make it black and white and all kind of janky and cranky but with a bit of like modern filmmaking in there uh, and give us yeah more monsters I really enjoyed the sort of undead serial killers thing but I think with the R.L. Steinness of this with the black goop festering under Sunnyvale and and Shadyside I think you could do something with outright like monstery monsters would be fun oh that would be great as um someone who has recently seen and very much enjoyed freaky i do think a first street body swap horror would be a lot of fun (laughs) and the characters again this is because the characters are so well drawn i i honestly would love to see any of those characters switch forms and you know, perhaps even one of the serial killers. Maybe it could be a serial killer on one of the core team, <laughs> like Body Swap. Purely for my own selfish reasons, I'd love to see it in the early noughties because that was a significant time for Ugg Boots and Missy Elliott and <laughs> the soundtrack. That would be fantastic. A mean girl's horror. And you could have a, a, a Sunny Veiler swapping bodies with a Shady Cider. Oh, there we go. There we go. Netflix, man. call us up. <laughs> Amon, what about you? man, 25%. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> hey, I'm going for 50. <laughs> yeah, dream big. Come on. <laughs> see, see, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave the negotiating to you guys when it comes to that. <laughs> I think a Conjuring Fear Street crossover would, would, would be very cool. I like the whole detective side of things. I'm a big fan of, sort of, uh, of that world and 
Uh, there's a lot to investigate <laughs> when it comes to the happenings of First Street. And then maybe, you know, like, <laughs> for as smart as the characters are in Night Night 4 Part 2, they do, they make one dumb mistake. The book is just laying there and nobody does anything. <laughs> you take that book, you burn it with fire 50 <laughs> times over. What are you doing just leaving it there? That's the sort of book, we're going to come back to the book at the very end of this podcast, but I think that's the sort of book that if you set it on fire, it would burn for like 10 hours and no damage would be done to it whatsoever. <sighs> I think that withstands whatever you throw at it. <sighs> is my, that's my headcanon, you know? Um, okay, a couple of last questions to get through. Uh, one from Bob Sherfield. What was the point in Ziggy having all those door locks if she only has a simple latch and no bars on the window? Uh, so I believe, mm -hmm. imagine we're talking about the grown-up Ziggy, uh, who is sort of fortified her house, but maybe not as well as she could have done. Yeah. I, I think I'm just going to go for a shrug horror movies as the answer <laughs> to that one. Wizards is why. Always wizards. wizards. <laughs> yes. When in doubt, it's wizards. Wizards did it. I mean, it had to happen so that they could break in, so that they could meet her. Otherwise, she would have just stayed in that impenetrable room. They would have been outside mm. and nothing would have happened. Boring <laughs> movie. <Plot> development. <laughs> and then this podcast, which you are gracing your ears with right now, would not be a thing. And that would be the biggest shame of all, right, guys? <laughs> okay, one last question then from Luke Gray. This is a really important one. Have you eaten sliced bread since watching these films? <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, I live in uh, in in Walthamstow, so it's all hand cut sourdough where I am. Anyway, it's all hand cut artisan olive bread. So no. Thankfully, but yeah, I don't think I could go through it again. Just, just sat there crying, eating <laughs> loaf of hobbits. I don't even know if I could eat a cake again. The, the, the cake that she gets her face smashed into is like it's ruined. Cake. It's ruined frosting. It's ruined sliced bread. Uh, even lobsters have been ruined with the, the lobster tank. You know, good for the hips, bad for the soul. Fifth Street. I have, but you better believe that I did. You know, had second thoughts and I definitely sort of, you know, got a flashback to that moment. I'm like, uh, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't do it today, but I was hungry, so I did. <laughs> I was hungry, so I did is going to be on Amazon's tombstone. <laughs> I'm changing my Twitter bio. I was hungry, so I did. Okay, then one last question from me before we wrap this thing up. Who do you think took the book at the end? Because that, that is a fun lingering question. I don't know who I think took that book. I don't know if it's a character that we're already aware of who would maybe have an, a vendetta. Maybe the grown-up Ziggy has some more mm. beef to air with the uh, the, the Sunnyvalers. Uh, who do you think took that book and is going to seize power in Sunnyvale? I didn't pay attention to the hand itself. Um, and I realise this is a character I'm talking about a lot, but I think Josh, because he's such a curious guy, you know, he has to, he seems very driven by theories and practices and and his detective work. And maybe that's just too big an itch to let go. Like he has to go into it and see what happens next. That would definitely be the most interesting. If it just, if it cut to him and it showed him, I think that would be the biggest shock for me. That would make me so annoyed. <laughs> Gosh. I would love that. Oh, that would tick me off so much. Well, just because Josh is your boy, just because you're yes, like, he wouldn't exactly. do that. Exactly. 
Oh, that would annoy me. I mean, <laughs> your your logic is sound, Beth, but it, uh, it would annoy me. I I'm I'm thinking who who would do it. While you're thinking, I have another suggestion. What if Seraphia is back from the dead and she's got a vendetta? What if Seraphia took the book? Oh, maybe. How? We'd have to. We'd, I mean, that would be that would make the most sense because it's got the less like less a reason behind it. Mm, mm, wizards yeah. did it. Wizards. Always <laughs> <You know? laughs> wizards. I mean, this is a very sort of you know broad answer, but maybe someone from Sunnyvale who was in on sort of. Or who had figured out what Nick Good was doing, mm. uh, and who was tracking sort of what was happening? Maybe someone from there, like that. That would be sort of easy to write after the fact. I think. Yeah. That would probably be where. That's, that's my prediction. I mean, that would be good because that would give them a chance to further plow into that. So that yeah, the sunny world versus like shady side. Saying, and, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, whoever it was, whatever that comes next, I can't wait to see more Fear Street. Hopefully we're going to get more of that down the line because I think we all agree these were really fun, really great horror films doing something really new, really inventive, and we've managed to chat for nearly an hour and a half about it all. So (laughs) that tells you something. But at this point, that very much wraps us up on the Fear Street trilogy. Thank you so much for listening uh, and stay tuned for plenty more spoiler pods coming your way in the very near future. But for now, it's goodbye from Squadcast name. Something about Beth rhyming with death, I don't know. It, it stresses me out so much. It stresses me out. This 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 bar of of names on this on this podcast. It stresses me out so much. I'm just taking ownership. <laughs> I'm claiming back my time and my like inner sanctum. So yeah, something to do with Beth rhyming with death. <laughs> I so don't much. know. That's Beth Webb. And uh, <laughs> also saying goodbye to AOL chat name, King of Air and Darkness, Amon Woman. Yeah, that felt, that felt like me. <laughs> <laughs> Peace. And I went for the same thing. We unknowingly did this. I also <laughs> went for Josh's AOL chat name, Horrible Silence. Thanks very much for listening. Catch you in Shady Side. Bye.